Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 21. Uh, this, this morning we pick up where we left off. Paul had just been in uh, Miletus where he met with the Ephesian elders. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a bittersweet moment, right? Paul is about to head off to Jerusalem and he tells the Ephesian elders that I don't think I'm ever going to see your face again. And there was great sadness as they sent him off. And we pick right up where we left off. In fact, the language here, then our very first verse is, is the language of um, uh, uh, being torn away as they parted. Being torn away. Um, so that's where we head. Uh, we're headed to Jerusalem. Uh, so let's turn now to God's Word, chapter 21 of Acts, verses 1 to 16. 21, verses 1 to 16. You can find that in your bulletin or turn there in your Bibles. And when he had parted from them, or when he was torn from them, or when he tore himself away from them, is probably the best translation, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And from there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And they all, uh, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship and they returned home. When we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were ur- there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning. Uh, that we might be compelled by it to, to follow you, to trust you, uh, to, to entrust ourselves to you. Uh, we thank you for the word and for your spirit uh, that impresses it upon our hearts and presses it out into our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we face a lot of decisions each day, basic decisions like what to eat for breakfast, 
I had cereal. I don't know what you kids had, but mine was life. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, what to wear, what route to take to work, etc. There are all sorts of benign decisions that we make without any real consequence. But occasionally, we're faced with much more challenging decisions. Whether or not to move, what job to take or not to take, what school to attend, whom to marry. These are the types of decisions that we make. Right? Hard decisions. And these decisions are often fraught with anxiety, uncertainty, second-guessing. Oftentimes we solicit uh, advice and we get both good and bad advice. Uh, and then add into this mix, as believers, as those that are, that are called to follow Christ, we, we ought or do have a deep concern with pleasing the Lord in these decisions. Uh, let me ask this question. How many have, of you have asked the question in such moments, I wonder what God's will is for me or for my family? Uh, it's a pretty common one, right? We ask that type of question. In fact, we can lay awake at night worrying about such things, fearful that if we take the wrong step, it might mean absolute disaster or at least some painful consequence. Uh, well, to make it much harder, uh, we get advice. And in that advice, even from believers, they can be opposing views. You should do X. No, you should do Y. And we trust both of these persons. And we're thinking, what do I do? Which way do I go? So some of us pull our hair out. That's how we deal with it. Some of us uh, put the decision off as long as we possibly can and then just make like a flippant decision at the very end. Uh, we don't want to think about it, so we just make a rash decision. Or sometimes, stubbornly, we do the thing that gives us the most pleasure or money or whatever. Uh, the thing that maybe not be the wisest decision, but we just do it because we want it. Uh, those are the off of the place we find ourselves in. Well, our text this morning delves into one of these types of challenging decisions. The Apostle Paul has a choice to go to Jerusalem or to stay, to stay wherever, in Ephesus, in Cyprus, in Caesarea, in all these places that he stops and he has a choice. Do I go on or do I stay? And each step of the way, it becomes abundantly clear that to go means sure trouble. Imprisonment, being bound, uh, ending up under Roman authority. Um, how does Paul discern God's will? How does he discern what God wants him to do? Uh, on the face of it, it's an extremely challenging decision. What's he to do? Um, but I want us this morning to think, maybe from a different perspective. Yeah, it is a challenging decision. But it comes down to a fairly simple posture. A simple posture. In whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It also comes down to a simple prayer. And Jesus himself prayed, Not my will, but thy will be done. 
So I just want us, as we contemplate life, I want us to contemplate this as our, our prayer. Thy will and thy glory alone. Whatever it is, whatever decision it is, however challenging that thought, that decision might be, I want us to, this to be our posture to the glory of God and this to be our prayer. Thy will be done. Now, it doesn't necessarily make the challenge go away, but it changes the paradigm for making decisions. It makes also accepting the consequences of our decisions easier, and it enables us to faithfully move forward in whatever decisions need to be made. It puts us in God's hands. So, with that, let's turn to the text as we consider this prayerful paradigm, Thy will and Thy glory alone. The first thing I want us to consider as we think about this paradigm um, is that it is God's will to include the church. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean. Whatever you do, whatever decisions you make, uh, it is God's will... That includes the church in the paradigm, in the picture. Whatever, whatever decision you're making, you, you ought to think about this. And, and not only that, but the church brings God glory. Uh, I, I think both of those things. At the center of God's will for humanity is the church. It is the, the people of God. Gathered together and spread out wherever they may be, but it is the church of God. And that church God made for Himself to bring Him glory. How do we see this in the text? Um, there's some challenging things in our text, and we'll have to wrestle with them, particularly when it comes to prophecy. Uh, we'll see a lot of prophecies. But one thing that is not challenging, but as I read it, brought me great joy as I looked at this, uh, was the relationship of Paul and the church. Remember, the text begins in Miletus. That's where Paul was with the Ephesian elders. Uh, Remember, I I mentioned that the word here in the ESV talks about him parting from them. Uh, The the force of the verb, it's brought out. If you have an NIV Bible, it's brought out in the NIV. But the force of it is, and he tore himself away. Have you ever experienced that kind of parting? You know what it's like. It's with tears. Um, Paul loved the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church loved Paul. In some ways, it's easy actually for us to understand the Ephesian church's love for Paul. He spent much of his ministry there over the past few years. Uh, They had gone through trials together. Um, But in some way, it was all wrapped up in Paul's burden for the church, his, his mission, his calling. He was called to build the church, to strengthen the church, to encourage the church. In other words, there would have been no affection... Uh, if it were not for Paul fulfilling the Lord's call, the Lord's will for him, that he would go and, and proclaim the gospel across the Roman world, that he would in fact build the church in that way. But it's not just the churches that Paul was directly invested in here that we see in our text. Um, that church that Paul finds affection and friendship. He finds it sort of across the Mediterranean as he moves from port to port. He goes off and he finds the local believers. So we see this first entire when they goes across uh, to uh, Syria, to, to the coast there. He comes in contact with the believing church there. And we notice some interesting things. He seeks out the church first, um, not one that he had established, but one that welcomed him in. 
<laughs> one that gave him a, a word of warning, right? Uh, we don't want you to go. They, they, were, they were burdened by the Spirit that, that he shouldn't go on to Jerusalem. But even when he finally decided to go on to Jerusalem, they, they walked back to the ship with him, and they knelt with him, and they prayed with him, and they said farewell to one another. There's mutual affection there. And I'll come back to all of the prophetic stuff in a bit. We'll get there. But I just want us to see the sort of the nature of the relationship of Paul and the church. It was a similar event in Caesarea. But even before that, we notice uh, one of the other ports he stops. He finds the church. He moves on. But here in Caesarea, he's at the home of Philip the Evangelist, somebody we met earlier in the book of Acts, one who uh, witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch, um, uh, one who was uh, uh, sort of formal in those early stages of, of Acts. Uh, He's got four daughters there who, are, who also prophesy. Um, and he also meets this other prophet, Agabus, who comes down and does this prophetic action. Um, Agabus is somebody we also met earlier in the book of Acts. Um, again, leaving aside the prophetic word for a moment, I want us to see how Paul is once again warmly received and cared for. In fact, it says they weep for him. He's headed off to Jerusalem and they are they're fearful for his life. They weep for him. His cares were their cares. His concerns, their concerns. Not only did they weep with him, but despite their protestation, they supported him. They even went up with him to Jerusalem. Some of them went with him uh, to Jerusalem, presumably at their own risk, right? Being associated with Paul probably wasn't the wisest thing. Finally, they get to Jerusalem and they enter this home of a man named Manasseh of Cyprus where they'll stay. Uh, the church was always central to the movements of Paul and to the life of these people. They saw themselves not in sort of individual isolation, but as brothers and sisters, as the body. Despite the fact that no one wanted Paul to go up to Jerusalem, they all loved him and cared for him, even though they didn't personally know him. It's also important to note that Paul did not set his face toward Jerusalem um, uh, uh, um, and then turn away from the church, right? Like, he didn't have an idea, okay, I'm headed here, and I'm going to leave everybody behind without care or concern. No, even though he's setting his face towards Jerusalem, he's stopping along the way. Did you notice that? He's stopping each step of the way to be invested in the life of those believers. Even though he felt compelled to go back, he took time to fellowship and to minister to the church. So I began this point by saying that God's will includes the church, and the church gives him glory. I think, I could be wrong, but I think there's a temptation for us to exclude the church from our discernment and our decision-making process. Um, and, and I don't just mean that we should seek the advice of the church. You know, Pastor Rob, what do you think I should do? Should I move here? Should I stay? I think that's good. I think you should seek the wisdom of everyone around you. In fact, that's one of the beauties of the church is like none of us retains all wisdom or knowledge or understanding. In fact, as broken sinners, we all are weak in various areas and the strength of another can come alongside. The wisdom of another can come alongside. But what I mean here is not just that, but it's something else. Wherever we go, whatever we do, it ought to involve the body of Christ, the church. 
If we are concerned with God's will for our lives, then we ought to be concerned with His church. Very early in my ministry, while I was still in seminary uh, and the youth director of a, of a church, I remember talking with a bunch of seniors at a youth retreat. And the only advice I remember giving them, I'm sure I gave them other advice, was that wherever they went, whether to college, to work, wherever, before you find a place to buy your groceries, before you sign up for classes, find a church. And so kids, as you get older and you go off to college and you leave your families behind, don't leave the church behind. Find a home. We were not made to live life in isolation. Rather, we were called into fellowship and community. And the amazing thing about this fellowship and community, as messy as it can get, there is an instantaneous bond and affection. Uh, we went to, uh, to celebrate West Hartford yesterday, those of us that went. And I don't know about the rest of you who were there, but for me, one of the great joys was when a fellow believer would come up, like the police officer. All they had to say was, where two or three are gathered, and all of a sudden there's immediate affection and bond. Have you experienced that? And it, and it really doesn't matter... They could be as different from us, they could have different theology, they could look different and whatever. There's immediate bond and affection. This may be one of the most God-glorifying aspects of the church. That He brings us together in diverse places, diverse backgrounds, and He calls us one, united in Him. I think there can be a temptation to isolate ourselves and abandon the church. Especially because the church, though it can have love and affection, remains full of broken sinners. But this is exactly that the thing, this is exactly the thing should draw us in. Though it's full of sinners, including you, including me, Christ loved her. Christ died for her. It was in spite of her sin that Christ set this crazy institution called church at the center of His life and ministry. He called her His bride. His body. And if Christ would die for the church and bind Himself to it, why should we ever abandon it? or dismiss it, or ignore it, even as we make plans for our life. Well, the will and glory of God includes the church, but secondly, to do God's will and bring Him glory means first and foremost, obedience to His Word. If this passage is marked by one thing, it's marked by the prophetic word of God. There are at least three prophetic words in our text. The prophetic word to the church at Tyre, in verse 4 it says, and through the Spirit, it's a prophetic word, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Second, the prophetic word of the daughters of Philip. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, we don't know what they prophesied exactly. I am going to conjecture, that means I'm uncertain, that it was something along the lines of, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem and it's going to go badly. You're going to get arrested. 
And then Agabus comes into uh, the picture there in Caesarea, and he says the same thing. In fact, he does a little display like the like the prophets of old. He he takes Paul's belt, he wraps it around his hands, and he says the, these words: uh, "Thus says the Holy Spirit: This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles." So three prophetic words. The second one, we don't know exactly what it was. We're just making a, a guess. And I realize that this brings up a whole set of questions concerning the nature of prophecy. Whether it continues today, and if so, in what sense. And I just want to point out that uh, uh, during the apostolic period, there were many special manifestations of the Spirit. Miraculous healings, speaking in tongues, prophecies uh, that were particular to the apostolic ministry and for the confirmation of the truth of the gospel as it went out. And I really don't think it's our place to try to recreate that moment in redemptive history. Right? Now, recreating that moment. It was particular. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament as we have it. It was still being written. And so these manifestations were God's gift to them. It's confirmation of the power of the Holy Spirit. And, um, with those caveats, I do think it is important to talk a bit about how we discern God's will and in what sense God speaks to us and guides us and directs us. Uh, now, as a buddy-duddy Presbyterian type, uh, I get a bit nervous when people say, God said to me, X, Y, Z, um, but if I'm not careful, I think I might be in danger of quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you old fuddy-duddy Presbyterian types are getting nervous right now. Um, but let, let, me, let me keep going. When Jesus ascended to heaven, He said that He would send His Spirit to us. To do what? To help us. To encourage us. To comfort us, to convict us, to guide us in the truth, to pray on our behalf. All of these things were activities of the Holy Spirit. And so when someone asks me if God still speaks today, I say yes. But then I carefully describe what I mean. Maybe this is my Presbyterianism coming in, but this is I want us to hear these things. Firstly... This is the most important thing in the way when we think about God speaking to us. He speaks definitively and authoritatively in His Word. Authoritatively and definitively in His Word. When we talk about discerning God's will for us, we can take great comfort knowing that we have it. We have the will of God right here for us. What an amazing thing. Uh, you can think of the way we hear God's will come forth in Scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. Right? Or, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Or this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. These are, these are both promises and exhortations. And I could go on and on with all the imperatives found in the Bible. But you get the idea. You see, we can talk, maybe this is the way to think about it, we can talk about the will of God in at least two different ways. Uh, the things He reveals to us and the things He doesn't. 
right? The things he tells us and the things he doesn't tell us. So it's sort of the two things. We both we could talk about the will of God. God knows everything from beginning to end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the first from the last. He has all things in his mind at all times. What an amazing thing. But he reveals to us these things. Deuteronomy 29.29 puts it this way, The secret things belong to the Lord, to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. That's, That's what this is for, to teach us, to show us the way, to lead us to Christ. There are things we don't know. We don't know what will happen tomorrow or the next day or really what will happen in a moment. We don't know. God does. He knows and He calls you in your uncertainty and your worry to trust Him and to obey His revealed will, His Word. God speaks through His Word. But God also speaks to us by His Spirit. See, now you're starting to get worried again. Okay, Rob, you're a Presbyterian. You're supposed to say God speaks through His Word, but now you're saying He speaks through His Spirit. Um, Before you get too worried, all I mean by this is that God, by His Spirit, takes His Word and impresses it into our hearts. And I say this a lot, but He presses it out into our lives. That's the nature of God's Spirit work in us. He uses the Word. It's called, the, the Word of God is called the sword of who? The Spirit. It's God's tool, His instrument that He uses in our lives to work stuff in us. And it's when we pray that God would reveal to us His will what we're asking for, what we're praying for, is wisdom to apply what we know we are called to do, His revealed Word, and to to apply it to those challenging decisions and situations that we face in our lives. That's, that's what we're talking. When we're talking about what the Spirit's active work in our hearts, um, it's to take the Word and press it in our hearts and lives and to take that Word and to press it out into the various situations. What do we call that? It's called wisdom. Right? It's called wisdom. And it's when we wrestle with those situations through prayer and reading His Word that the Spirit often directs our path in the way that we should go. Uh, the way that would bring God glory. Now, I realize that sometimes, even after praying and reading His will, things are still not clear. You guys still have a decision looming in front of you. Both ways seem reasonable. Both ways are fraught with problems. And it's hard to know what, what God's will is. And there's two things that we can do to derive comfort and confidence. First, realize that God is a God of providence, that He opens and shuts doors for us. So you can say, okay, Lord, you know, I, I don't know what way it goes, so I'm going to step this way. And all of a sudden, everything in that path is closed. Okay, I can't step that way. Maybe that's providentially being hindered. Paul would often talk about this. He said, I really desired to get you guys, but I couldn't get there because the Lord wouldn't let me. Providentially hindered. Or God opens a door. Right? All of a sudden, you find the pathway, God using various means to enable you to do whatever decision you're trying to make. God has providence. Second, and this goes back to my first point about the church, we are part of a church. None of us holds all wisdom or understanding or knowledge. 
And part of us being bound together, being united, is to come together and to discern, right? To encourage one another. Uh, God uses you as a, as a spirit instrument to speak into the life of another. I, I think that's part of how God made us to be. There's all sorts of people with sanctified wisdom. The Spirit speaks through them. And so when we talk about the Spirit guidance, we often will use language like, depending on your tradition, like this, God spoke to me. Right? What does He mean? Well, laid it on your heart. There's another way we talk about it. Or God directed me. Or the Spirit encouraged me. Or, or uh, you know... All sorts of other ways that we talk about the, the, the way the Spirit led me in this direction. Now, I, I do have to confess that I get nervous when someone says God spoke to me because sometimes, sometimes, and I don't think this is very frequent, but sometimes we can take that word as absolute. If God speaks, thus says the Lord, you must get married to so-and-so. <laughs> Hopefully that makes you a bit nervous. That would make me a bit nervous if someone said that to me. Um, uh, we have to remind ourselves that there is only one absolute infallible Word of God, that is the Bible, and it alone can bind our conscience. That means it alone can tell us how exactly to live. But that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't speak, that He doesn't work through others to say, you know, the Lord laid it on my heart. I really think you should do X. I think that's wise. Wisdom applied. So there's no ongoing revelation in the, in the one sense. Um, but I think it's helpful to think about this spirit guiding and call it sanctified wisdom. That's my favorite term. Sanctified wisdom. Holy Spirit derived gospel penetrated word pressed wisdom. That is, the word in situ, the word active in the world. When, when, we, when we go out and we think about how do we wrestle through this particular issue right here today, we're thinking all the thoughts of God, right? The thoughts that God Himself spoke to us through His Word. And as these things are penetrated in our hearts by the Spirit, we start to think, you know, I think this may be the best option. With humility and grace, recognizing we are not God Himself. Sanctified wisdom. Well, we've left Paul and his conundrum, whether to go to Jerusalem or not. And I want to, to get back to that and close by thinking about this, these simple words that Jesus prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is where I want to close. Thy will, not mine. Paul faced these spirit-filled prophecies that seemingly indicated that he probably shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Each step of the way, another person is saying, you know, Paul, you really shouldn't go to Jerusalem. I think that was at least the perspective of the church that he visited. Each of the prophecies he received likely weren't, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, but they were probably like what Agabus did and said, right? He took the, the uh, belt, wrapped it around his hands, and said, whoever's belt this belongs to, uh, you're going to be bound like this and put under Roman authority. 
That was probably the prophecy that was at the beginning as well. To, to the, the Spirit-led, they probably had some sort of Spirit-prophetic word to them that said, Paul is going to be bound and he is going to face possibly even death or, or his life. And, and you can understand then when they said, wait a minute, Paul, maybe you shouldn't go. Uh, right? Well, I think we can all... Uh, even though I think their, their conclusion was wrong, uh, I think we can be sympathetic with their conclusion. After all, losing Paul at this sort of nascent point, uh, this moment of life in the church, seemed devastating. How could they continue without his guidance and help? The thing is, we know from the two previous chapters, chapter 19 and 20, that Paul was constrained by that same spirit to go on to Jerusalem. We read in verse 21 of chapter 19, Now after these events, Paul resolved, he resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. In chapter 20, in verses 22 and following, it says, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But he continues, he says, But I don't count, account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, the grace of God. You see, Paul, in the Spirit, was resolved to go to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Jesus similarly set his face towards Jerusalem when he told his disciples that he had to go and die at the hands of Rome. Peter took him aside. Do you remember this? In the Gospel of Mark, particularly Mark chapter 8, uh, Peter had just said, Jesus, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the chosen one. And just following that, Jesus said, you know what? The Son of Man has to, has to be crucified at the hands of, of Rome. And what does Peter do? Peter takes him aside and, and rebukes Jesus. No, that's not the way. <laughs> Don't go to Jerusalem. Go another way. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Why? Why would he say something so harsh to Peter? Because that was the way. A few verses later, he said, Pick up your cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, Paul understood this when he said, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, he was committed to going and bearing witness in Jerusalem what God had done among the Gentiles. And he was willing to do it at whatever the cost. Jesus didn't want to suffer on a cross. Who would? He was in agony, pleading with His Heavenly Father, let this cup pass by, but He prayed in that garden, not my will, but Yours be done. And isn't this the wonder of the Gospel? That Christ gave Himself up for us, that we might have life, As we worry and we consider what God's will is for us, remember, 
He died for you. He loves you. He cares for you. All those concerns are in His hands. And He knows them. And He's called us to follow Him wherever that leads. Through trials and deep valleys. But He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you think about discerning God's will, are you thinking about those things? Are you thinking about picking up your cross and following Jesus, whatever the cost? And are you thinking about how He will care for you, how He will sustain you, whatever comes? As we wonder at the gospel, at the sacrifice of Jesus, let our prayers always be, not my will, but your will be done so that you might receive all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that we struggle in our decisions and we don't have all wisdom or knowledge or understanding and we can't see the future. But Lord, you know it all. You have it all in your hands. And we thank you that you have revealed these things in your word to us that we might live faithful lives. And we thank You for the church that You've brought us together and that we can encourage one another through Spirit-sanctified wisdom, encouraging one another. And we ask that You would give us uh, confidence and faith knowing that You care for us. Lord, so in that, and whatever You call us to, help us to lift our cross, to sacrifice our own self for the sake of You. Uh, Lord, that's a hard thing. Uh, we need your grace, but Lord, you died for us. You gave yourself for us, and we thank you for that great gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.